The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Foran. I hope you're enjoying the series so far. I hope you're finding it helpful and you're feeling that you're owning it a little bit day by day with your own anxiety. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Rosie Plunkett, who's a psychiatrist, to talk about all things medication. So we're getting right down into the nuts and bolts of medication, what the different kinds of medication are, how they work, why someone might need them, why someone might not. We also talk about the stigma around medication, which is obviously such a huge topic. I myself struggle to admit that I still am on medication and self-stigma is a very big thing. And I guess when I went on medication at first, I thought it meant that I was weak. And these days I struggle to admit that I'm on it because I'm afraid of what people will think. So we discuss all of that. And yeah, there's no need to give any more of an intro than this. Rosie is brilliant. She will really make everything very clear for you. And when you're finished with this, if you're looking for something else to listen to that's not anxiety related, she has her own podcast called Keep Her Lit and it's on iTunes and it's very enjoyable. So yeah, enjoy. And as always, I'm very grateful for any reviews and subscribes on iTunes. Thank you. So I'm a psychiatrist and a lot of people don't know necessarily that a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who's specializing in treatment of mental health problems and mental illnesses. So I've done medicine first, then I was a general doctor for a year, and now for the last six years I've been specializing in psychiatry. So that means I've worked in hospitals, kind of mental health specific hospitals, and also general hospitals, working with people who have all sorts of different problems from anxiety to schizophrenia psychosis to bipolar disorder, personality disorders... And my job is to assess them, to try and give them a picture of what's the pattern of problems and how we conceptualize what might be helpful for them, to treat people who are going to benefit from medication with medication, to try to have therapeutic engagement, so kind of talk therapy type engagement with people, and then to refer people on if they need an occupational therapist to help them getting back to work, or if they need specific psychological therapy to a psychologist. So okay. that's kind of where I fit in. And if someone wants to talk to a psychiatrist, 
Do they have to be referred to you? Yeah. Okay. So psychiatry is a specialist medical service. In Ireland, that means that you've come through secondary care. So you've seen a primary care doctor, so a GP, Your GP. Okay. Um, and they refer you on. That's not the case in every country. And also in some private services, you can directly self-refer to a psychiatrist. But in general, it's a secondary care thing. So it's when people have kind of gone to their doctor and their GP thinks that they'll need kind of extra input. That's when okay. we'd come in. Obviously, the theme of this episode is medication and I want to deep dive into it and it's been something that I get asked a lot about and obviously I'm not the professional. I can only ever speak from my experience. I also know that there's a lot of um, misinformation out there and people have a lot of kind of mixed ideas about it and I think there's a lack of awareness and understanding and education around medication because people just don't want to know about it uh, until they have to and then there's a fear and there's a stigma so we'll get into all of that. But first I want to tell you I suppose my experience of medication and how I got there and for me when I first started to really suffer with anxiety I went to my GP to rule out anything physical or sinister more sinister like thyroid issue or something which I'd heard can sometimes manifest as anxiety so it's good to just rule out those things get your bloods done that's usually what I suggest people do if they are completely bowled over by it and they they can't really tell the wood from the trees then I alongside that and I didn't have great experiences in my GP in the first few goes they were a lot older not to sound ages but they definitely were much further removed from the contemporary experience of anxiety and you know our generation and and I I felt like maybe there's a little bit of I'll just kind of get on with it I started going to sort of regular talking therapy I wasn't specifically CBT or anything just sort of talking through everything and I I was feeling so bad I was I would say I was like sick with anxiety so Mm. I was not sleeping I had aches and pains all over my body everyone listening knows this story I lost loads of weight I had just constant anxiety in my limbs and panic and I was crying all day every day I just couldn't I guess I was depressed as a side effect of feeling so bad and so anxious I just couldn't get myself together again and I couldn't benefit from going for a walk or having a cup of tea or having a chat with my mom you know I was like trying to just snap out of it and and I couldn't and it was going on and on for a long time and I was like I need help to get my head above water so that I can benefit from yoga or a walk or a chat or whatever I just needed to kind of give myself I I didn't even have like an hour where I felt at ease or relaxed and I kind of think like if I go way back to the first weekend of horrific panic attacks if I hadn't just been able to take like a Xanax or something then I probably would have just had a moment to be like okay let's just calm down but I was such I was on such a heightened level of cortisol and pure panic for such a long time that my body my hormones were doing their own thing I wasn't going to be able to rationalize myself down it was purely a physical this is how I see it purely physical mix up overload of one thing not enough of the other thing definitely no serotonin no melatonin for sleeping and um, I was in a really really bad way and I was getting worse and worse and worse and the more you feel that way the more it kind of grows and like a you know something gathering pace down a hill yeah and um, so eventually I I was talking to my therapist and and she was like maybe you should consider going down the medication route just to help in one way and I not knowing anything about it my mind just went to like this sounds so bad but like crazy Americans on Prozac because that's what we hear in movies and TV and like the word Prozac was like you're crazy if you're on that and I just felt so much shame and like oh my god is this where I am that I 
have everything going for me on paper and everyone will be like what's wrong with you why can't you get it together and now I have to medicate myself and obviously I was misinformed I was very harsh myself I wanted to get over it without having to need this but actually eventually it was the most empowering decision I made for myself was to say I'm not okay I need help I'm going to try medication and why I always try to get across to people is that it's one aspect of a whole picture of managing anxiety so I was talking to my therapist I was ruling out other things I was addressing it and looking at the reasons why which I, everyone knows I've you know gone through all that but I needed to like I say just lift my head up above the yeah. water level so at first I went on um, Effexor and I was just so panicked <laughs> I remember like the, one of the first few nights on it and this was pure anxiety I thought I had some sort of reaction to it but I just had like a really violent panic attack and I thought it was like disagreeing with me and I was like I need to go to the hospital and Barry my husband was terrified and because we both just were in the dark about medication and um, it was just yeah it was really unnerving and then I kind of settled down and I was on it for about six months and I it didn't really work for me and yeah. um but I didn't know what it was supposed to feel like or what did it feel like I just didn't feel any better like I didn't necessarily feel any worse, but okay. I was like, I, I just didn't really know what the point of it was. Um, yeah. And I, I obviously then I felt lower because I'm like, well, nothing can help me. Yeah. And so just, then you have the impact of not having. Yeah. And then I remember, so I went on that maybe in um, May or June and it wasn't until Christmas and I was really bad at Christmas. Um, and the, the doctor had been giving me um, like a couple of Valium to try and help, you know, on top of the effexor, which is the antidepressant, yeah. and I know we'll get into explaining the different types in a minute, but um, and I remember through Christmas, I just was, I couldn't cope at all. I was just living on Valium to get me through. I was away and I couldn't function. I had to be out socializing and it was really awful. And I just realized that, okay, this effexor stuff is not working at all. So I went back to the doctor and I was like, I need to try something else. And then she put me on Prozac. And for the first six weeks, I felt horrific okay and you'll explain to me now why that was and yep. it makes a lot of sense and then the fog kind of started to lift little by little after that while and then I had to adjust the dosage so I was on 20 milligrams and then I started to actually I was having a lot of fibromyalgia I don't know if that's the word you would use but I had those aches and pains and I just was in physical pain all the time so the doctor said let's just adjust it slightly and um a couple of days after being on the, the adjustment I started to feel like slightly human again and was that up to 40? Yeah, yeah, that was up to 40. And um, slowly but surely, I started to be able to put the pieces back together again and function. And I really, in a way, I credit medication for having been able to help me do that. But sometimes I'm in fear of it because I think, would I not have gotten back to myself without it? And maybe I wouldn't have. But it was a tool and it was there and I used it and I'm delighted that I did. Now, what people maybe don't realise, because I don't really talk about it much, and I share everything I mean there's nothing I don't talk about on social media but I I'm still on the Prozac and people sometimes make comments to me without knowing that I'm on it and I don't take offense because I know I understand the stigma and I know it's there but I do still feel kind of I'm afraid of saying it because I'm afraid of people saying you know well she's got these books and this podcast and everything and like the reason she's fine is because she's on medication and is that a cop-out or you know is that actually a responsible thing to do so I kind of feed into the stigma myself a little bit um and but then I kind of talk to myself and I talk to Barry and my family and I say look I could just come off it but it's working for me and I feel good and 
it's not that it doesn't numb me or anything. I'm very much yeah. myself. I'm still really emotional. I still cry at movies. I still have moments yeah. of anger and I still have a lot of moments of panic and anxiety. But I think for me, I was very much on a deficit of certain hormones and I think it just leveled me off. And I, so I think it actually brings me back to normal. I don't yeah. think it takes me from normal to like abnormal. Um, so yeah, I do want people to know that I'm still honest and that it's okay. And a lot of people are on them for years. Yeah. And I was really excited when you asked me to meet and talk, to be honest, because I think it's rare enough that you get to talk to somebody who has taken medication, who has had a good kind of impact and effect and benefit from medication and who's willing to talk about the fact that they're on it and taking it in a way that's helpful because often what happens for me as a doctor is I'll be seeing people who are maybe in that stage when you were just before you started the effects are where you're like I know I'm not okay but I want to be able to do this myself and I understand we're all afraid to take medication that impacts our brains and our minds you know it's a frightening concept mm -hmm. but what I try to explain to people is that it's to bring you back to a point where you're able to do the work that you need to do. Exactly. It's not going to bring you above normal. They don't work like that. And actually, like you've experienced, sometimes they do the opposite for a while. They can be challenging to take. But what they allow is for somebody then to, you know, bring in the other parts that they need to get better. But my difficulty is when I'm having this conversation with people, I'm sitting at the other side of a desk from them in an office. So there's already an inherent kind of presumption probably on their side that I'm going to want to give them drugs and like just to get them out the door yeah or that that's my job so that's what I do and I think it's really important to be clear that a good psychiatrist will only prescribe when they think it's really going to be effective um, and that we're careful about that in fact it can be really difficult to, to kind of get prescribed the medication you need because people are reluctant to do it appropriately uh, until it's clear that that's going to be the benefit. But my problem is when I'm having the conversation with people, sometimes I think that they don't really believe that it'll help them. Okay. Um, so it's nice to think that somebody who's actually experienced it, who people trust and can understand their experience, is saying, it has helped me. Um, because I, I want people to be able to really make the decision for themselves when it is right or not to take medication, but with informed. If someone needs to go on medication, how do you make them less afraid of the idea? I talk to them. That's the biggest thing that I do. And I also give them time. So normally if they're afraid, what I'll do is I'll explain it, explain why I think they should take it. And I'll give them a couple of kind of information sites or leaflets for them to look at and bring them back quite quickly afterwards. Because I think the worst thing you can do is send them out with a prescription that day yes. when they're not already mentally ready to take it because they won't come back, they won't take it and you've wasted their time um, and probably put them in a position where they feel very pressurized. So I think the best thing is, look, this stuff works, but you don't have to take it. You know, especially for anxiety and things like that. You know, it's not that the person is going to be in a position where they're going to get treatment that they're not consenting to yes um so i think it's really important that that be informed consent and that they really be clear on why they would take it for themselves i think for me one of the main things that helped me appreciate medication and actually get to a point of owning my anxiety entirely was to focus purely on the physical so what's happening in my body instead of thinking about how i'm being perceived what this means what's going on just look at the cold hard facts of you are producing so much stress hormones for such a long time 
that you can't, you know, li- literally take it down to that brass tack stuff. 100%. And what you were describing when you were saying you, know, you weren't sleeping, you were losing loads of weight, you had constant panic symptoms. And pain. And pain. What we call that, what that is physically is autonomic hyperarousal. Okay, so we have a nervous system in our body that we're not that aware of consciously called our autonomic nervous system. And that's our kind of fight or flight that's the sympathetic nervous system Mm -hmm. and then our rest and digest is the parasympathetic nervous system and those two are ideally in balance in our body so that when we need to be activated our stress hormones kick in and we can get up in the morning we can be uh you know our blood pressure can keep up we can uh be alert and then when we have downtime our parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and you know the blood can flow back from our muscles into our gut uh, we can slow our breathing. That's we where we want to be. Easily. It's delicious, <laughs> but you need both. If you were just that, you'd be a sloth okay. times a thousand. You know, you need the balance. But what happens, because we're so overstimulated, our, par- our, our parasympathetic gets downregulated, our sympathetic gets upregulated, and we're constantly in a state of stress that doesn't need to be. Okay. So that is what's happening in your body. And that's why it gets self-perpetuating. Because when we were developing kind of like as cavemen danger was a primer for danger you know so when there's danger it means you have to become more alert Mm -hmm. but the problem is now that the danger signals we're getting obviously are from things that aren't requiring us to be active I was talking to Pat Dively about this um, and he's not a psychological professional at all but he just explained it really well about you know you want the alarm in the house to go off if there's a fire, but if the alarm is going off every time the toaster pops, yeah. there's a problem. And in our contemporary experience, for me, toasters were popping left, right and centre. Exactly. Um, and I was perceiving things, my body was perceiving things that were completely innocuous as a threat or yeah. an emotional threat. Yeah. And we still respond to emotional threats the same way we would have responded to a physical threat. And I think people knowing that is crucial. Yeah. I also think... You know, you were talking about people saying needing time to kind of process and, and know about the medication before they consider it. One of the biggest reasons they're afraid is what people will think of them. Yeah, and that's that's true of us always. You know, we're always worried what people will think. But like you said, you have to bring it back to brass tacks in your own experience. At the end of the day, you're not well. You're not yourself. You know that. That's why you've come to speak to somebody. And giving yourself the respect of saying, I deserve treatment, actually. And I don't have to suffer like this if there's something that somebody believes will actually help. Like the the boss that I work for at the moment, the consultant that I work with, she talks about the idea of like, if somebody is missing a leg, mm-hmm. you don't just wait for them to grow a leg back. Yeah. You know, you have to give them crutches. You have to give them physiotherapy. You have to give them the things that will allow them to live while their leg is injured. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's fair that when it comes to mental health, we decide you have to be able to do it all by lifestyle. We wouldn't expect somebody who had high blood pressure not to go on blood pressure medication unless, you know, the lifestyle changes did work for them. And you do them in tandem with your lifestyle changes as well. And maybe it doesn't have to be something that you're on for the rest of your life. Or maybe, like I always say, had I had the awareness of what was happening and been able to pull myself off that, you know, train track, maybe I wouldn't have gotten to the point where I was so ill and my my what was it arousal? autonomic autonomic hyperarousal. Hyperarousal was like through the roof yeah maybe i wouldn't have needed it maybe or maybe not caroline and i think that's important to think about too it's not just a case of severity okay it's also a case of type okay because it's easy maybe to think of it as i got so sick i need a treatment and that's probably how i justify it yeah and that's fair to think about i mean it's yeah. true in a way but equally you had the type of condition 
that treatment is required for, Mm -hmm. you know? And actually, I think sometimes it adds to the stigma to think, you know, you know, if we're only a little bit sick, then we only need lifestyle changes. And if we're really sick, we need medication. It's not really like that. It's actually depends on the type of sickness. So you can be super ill with a flu, but antibiotics aren't going to do nothing for you. And you can have a small chest infection and antibiotics are really important to stop it getting to pneumonia. So it depends actually on what you're treating, not so much just on how ill the person or how unwell okay, okay. they are. So I would have felt like taking medication mean, meant weakness. And now the way I see it was actually in that dark moment of feeling like I'm going to do this, it was like a little bit of strength that came out of nowhere. Yeah. And I just think it's so important that people, if they're feeling like they need to, maybe they want to consider it or maybe they want to talk about their options, that that's actually they're proactive they're making a decision for themselves and they're not going to do it without the guidance of someone important and they're trusting themselves and respecting themselves to know that this might help them and it's worth that and if it doesn't that's not the end of the world you can always go back you can always change yes you know it's not a black or white decision Mm -hmm. there's still lots to think about within the decision of taking treatment when you talk about you know well if you had a blood pressure issue you'd medicate that I've always tried to understand that. Like, why are, will I say, oh, I'm going to leave this dinner party early. I don't feel well in my tummy. But what I won't say, I'm actually just feeling really overwhelmed. And I think from what I've read and researched is that a physical thing happens to you, whereas a mental issue we feel like is us. You know, we become it. And you can't control getting a flu, but we feel like we should be able to control getting anxious. And then that's scary to admit that you're not in control I think that's why people are afraid of it. Basically, you know, what you summed up there is mind-body dualism. So we have this idea that we are a body and a mind and that they're two different things. Exactly that. Any problem with our mind is an internal flaw and any problem with our body is, you know, to be treated from external. And neither of those things is true. We're a whole entity. And I think, look, a certain amount of self-stigma is kind of inevitable and maybe even a bit helpful. To be able to say, look, there are times where I need to push myself, not, you know, kind of mind myself or, you know, to be able to use that helpful drive to change things so that we feel better emotionally. But what's really unhelpful is the sort of self-stigma that stands in your way from actually you know, being able to care for yourself and being able to get the treatment that you need. Mm-hmm. Things like saying needing medication to treat something that affects my mind is weakness. Mm-hmm. Because the fact is, anxiety, depression, psychosis, they are biological illnesses. Yeah, it's all the one body. You know, they're affecting your whole system. They affect your hormones, they affect your neuroreceptors, they affect your blood pressure, they affect everything physically equally as much as they affect your thought processes, your emotions, you know, it's all interlinked. Um, So that's why treatment sometimes is really important. When people say, talk to me about medication and say, you know, something kind of negative about, oh, everyone Mm. just being medicated. I think that they're thinking about being popping Valium and Xanax every day. So I really want to break down with you the different types of medication that are out there, what differentiate them, when you might take one versus another, so yeah. we start with maybe the short term. Okay, so let's start with the ones I don't use. Okay. <laughs> or very, very rarely use. Uh, so those are the benzodiazepines, which are, you know, you probably know Xanax, which yes. is Alpratalam. Which I love. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, we always say it's a double-edged sword. It works too well, so it doesn't work at all. Um, uh, there's also Valium, which is just, a, these are all longer and shorter acting forms yeah. of the same medication. So Valium, which is diazepam, Alprazam, which is Xanax, Clonazepam, which is Rivotril, uh, Lorazepam, which is, uh, I don't even know what the brand name for that is. So the, there's a whole class that work at different durations within the body, but all of them are benzodiazepines, which means what they do is they work on the GABA system within the brain. So the kind of relaxation system, the same one that alcohol works on. Okay. And I use that analogy because it actually works very similarly to alcohol. You have one or two glasses of wine, so you have a, a therapeutic dose mm -hmm. and you feel relaxed. You have a super therapeutic dose and you pass out mm -hmm. or go unconscious. Uh, you take it for too long or too consistently. What happens is the GABA receptors in your brain actually multiply to absorb the amount of benzodiazepine or alcohol that you're taking. So then when you don't get it, you get withdrawals okay. because you've got more receptors there now and they're empty. Okay. So that's why I don't use benzodiazepines is because over time you become dependent and they cause craving and they cause withdrawal effects and they actually make the problem worse. But these are benzos are something people take in the moment. Yeah. So if you're having a panic attack, you would maybe if you were given one, take one and it would calm you down within 20 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Because what they do is they activate your GABA system. Your brain says, actually, all is fine. You're literally your brain like calms down and that regulates then your heart rate, your blood pressure, all that kind of stuff secondarily. Mm -hmm. So they're great. They work. But they'll only work, you know, to reduce the symptoms. Firstly, yeah. they won't change your thought processes. No. Or the, you know, if you're having a panic attack because you're on a plane, you're still on a plane, yes. you know, so this is the stuff that comes in. But equally, what's really good about them probably is the, the Xanax in the pocket effect. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. To I've had a packet of Xanax, probably gone off now for a while that I was prescribed and it was just a comfort blanket in case of emergencies. I just like knowing that they're there. It just makes me feel like things cannot get so bad that I can't rescue myself. Yeah. So that's it for me, really. And I would have had a lot of awareness about, you know, addiction and just be, being smart enough to know that it's an easy way out, but it's going to cause you problems later on. So I never wanted to be relying on them. But if I ever felt really bad and I was in a situation that I was going to just get worse, I just would let myself off the hook by saying, just take one. Yeah. But I know you have to And when you use them like that, that's yeah. really helpful and that there's no problem with using them like that. But you have to be responsible. Have to be responsible. And like, I mean, we trust ourselves to take salpidine responsibly and then some people can't. So there's a need for it to be regulated, but equally, you know, there is a responsibility on each individual to take them usefully and helpfully. Yeah. Um, and in my experience, I mean, doctors, in fairness to them, are very reluctant. They're not handing them out like sweets. We're getting uh, better. Yeah. I think well, better. I, I mean, in my experience, I mean, I was on the TV, um, I think it was last year, and they were having this whole debate about medication and the doctors just handing them out just to get rid of people. And I was like, that's just not my experience as a patient who goes in looking for help and saying, you know, I, I want to consider my options. They were wanting to make sure that I was still going, you know, all of the other routes, the lifestyle routes as well. So I think that doctors deserve credit for that. Yeah, I think so too. I think we've seen over the years the problems that they cause and nobody wants to be literally causing problems for their patients. Well, most doctors don't. <laughs> yeah. The other ones I don't use um, are Lyrica, which is pregabalin. That some people might be on that. Uh, GPs, I think, were kind of targeted with the... 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Evidence about that when it came out maybe kind of 10 years ago or so. Uh, but the reason I don't use it is again over time it's been shown that it works just in that same way so it has a symptomatic effect and it can relax people like alcohol does but it's addictive and it doesn't have a lasting benefit um, which the medication we're going to come on to and speak about that I do advocate SSRIs and SNRIs they have a lasting effect on the brain after you've taken a course of them that keeps people well Oh, so they're like finishing a course of antibiotics and the bug is completely gone. That's okay. how they work. Before we get on to those, yeah. which is what I'm on, um, I remember researching loads online and being on bloody like threads, you know, community threads, boards and stuff, trying desperately to like read everyone else's experience and things. And I'd heard about uh, beta blockers. Oh, yeah. So beta blockers are really interesting. They work in a kind of counter intuitive way. So instead of relaxing the brain to relax the body like we talked about with the Xanax and then your heart rate settles and whatever beta blockers work the opposite way so what they do is they block the beta receptors where adrenaline is is affecting the beta receptors are all over our body and when they take in adrenaline they do all the things we associate with anxiety so they increase our heart rate and our heart contractility and they increase our lung rate like our breathing rate and they make our breathing more shallow and they increase the flow of blood to our muscles they reduce the flow of blood to our gut they make us clammy and sweaty so the beta receptors are the uh foot soldiers of adrenaline i guess okay and beta blockers mean that although that adrenaline is coursing through your system it's being blocked from having its effect at the receptors so your heart will slow down your lung capacity will kind of reduce back to normal and um, you won't sweat you won't flush so all so their physical effects maybe someone giving a speech or something exactly so you can't see the physical effects of anxiety the person still has mental anxiety sometimes but for some people actually if your body is calm your mind calms yeah so that's why for some people they're actually quite an effective treatment i would say it depends on how you process your anxiety how your body manifest and how you experience anxiety I, I 
I have very little experience of prescribing them, but sometimes people come to me on them and they find them really effective. Mm-hmm. So I have seen them used. And would they be something that people take sort of ad hoc? Or? Um, it depends. I mean, there are some people who are on them regularly for blood pressure management. That's their main job. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, and there are people who take them just because they don't want to flush in front of a presentation. And then there are people who take them at exam time or whatever because they find like a Xanax type symptomatic relief of anxiety so they can be used in different ways but the main time that they're used regularly is people who have kind of blood pressure and Mm. um that's their original use okay and then the antidepressants so ssris are the class that's been most consistently demonstrated to have effects in anxiety and to be therapeutic not dependence forming so those are the ones we use the most those are things like fluoxetine which is prozac Sertraline, which I use a lot um, because it's kind of the least probably worrisome in women of childbearing age. It has the least cardiac side effects. Um, and there's a nice range of doses. You can go from 12.5 up to 200. So that's one we use okay. a lot. Um, citalopram and esitalopram. So that's Lexapro. Um, that was used a lot, maybe five, 10 years ago, but it's been shown to have effects on the heart tracing. So we're kind of using that less now for you know for most people um why are they called antidepressants so they're called antidepressants because that's when they were first developed they were antidepressants and they are used in depression but they have a differential effect they have a few different ways in which they work and they treat both depression and anxiety i don't know why they've never been (laughs) rebranded really i think probably as well because benzodiazepines were the anti-anxiety drug Mm -hmm. so they never really got that name um, but that's a real, uh, yeah, it's an important thing to explain to people. Some people who have anxiety also have depression. Yeah. And like you described, being stressed and anxious consistently for weeks or months causes depression yeah. in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But it's actually treatment of the anxiety that they're targeted at. Yeah, like if I didn't have the anxiety, I wouldn't have been depressed at yeah. the side effect of it. And I, I don't think depression is something I suffer with or have ever really experienced. So it's not something people kind of lump anxiety and depression together yeah. and they ask me about it and it's just there it's not something i think depression is like a completely other side to anxiety where you're completely highly strung with anxiety and depression you just have no motivation and no from what i've heard it, they're very very different you can have you know you can have one the other or both it's like apples and pears okay and then that weird mix of an apple and pear that they've made somewhere. <laughs> like a yeah exactly uh so they're cross-ups and donuts but um the SSRIs work in a few different ways. The main way that people are kind of familiar with is that they reduce your absorption of serotonin. So they increase up the level of floating around serotonin in the brain, so effective serotonin. And that's how come they have effect that takes maybe six weeks or so to, mm-hmm. to fully show itself. But they're working in different ways too that are becoming more and more clear. And I think it's really important to, be, to tell people it's not just a serotonin imbalance. Okay, There's more going on. So SSRIs also work by increasing the neuroplasticity of your brain. So that's our ability of our brain to rewire, which is happening all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. new experiences, new learning, we create new pathways. SSRIs increase up your brain's ability to do that. It also, they have effects on the gut serotonin receptors. So again, kind of your ability to digest food and the nutrients you take from it are probably affected by SSRIs. And then the kind of, way that I'm interested in that's being emerging uh, kind of evidence that they work through immune modulation so they it's not clear exactly how but they have some effects on the kind of complement system and different um, 
I suppose, chemical systems that are active in our bodies when we have autoimmune disorders or inflammation within the body. So they probably help to regulate our own immune processing within mm -hmm. our bodies as well. Um, so it's been shown, for example, that people who've had heart attacks who go on SSRIs are less likely to have heart attacks in the future. And that's thought to be through immune processing, actually, and changes in the blood. Um, so they work through a few different ways. But generally speaking, they're active in the brain. They're active through serotonin and through changes in the receptors. And that's why they don't work straight away. They take some time to have their full effect, even if they've worked a little bit with maybe within three, four weeks, you know, you can still see more benefit. Uh, but it's also why for some people they get worse before they get better. And that was my experience. And with Effexor, I didn't get worse. Well, actually, maybe I did, but I was so bad. I couldn't tell the wood from the trees. But with the Prozac, I had been told and I had read that actually sometimes when one works for you, it can get a lot worse before it got better. So I had the perseverance to know don't just stop taking this Good. even though you feel bad and eventually the fog did lift but an awful lot of people don't know that and then they just stop and they've been you know adding this fuel the whole time then they just go off it completely ad hoc and you know then they're in it like on in a ball about it and they think that they're just so unable to cope and out of control but actually it's all those chemicals exactly i, I want to just say as well before we move mm -hmm. on to talking a bit about that that Venlafaxine, so that's Effexor that you were on, that's an SNRI. Okay, what's so the difference? Serotonin noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. So it's working not just on the serotonin system, but also on the noradrenaline system. They are used, again, it's kind of a bit, probably a bit of a marketing thing that venlafaxine is seen as more of an anxiety specific medication. And definitely it does help people who can persevere through it. But I don't usually start with SNRIs, the reason being that they're a little bit more activating than the SSRIs. So for some people, they can get this kind of internal driven sensation. They can get um, like a lot of increase in panic symptoms and things like that when they first start, especially an SNRI. Um, and when I do use them with people, I often would kind of explain that to them and even maybe give them some benzodiazepines that they can take <laughs> if that's happening yes. for them to come back as well. Because... Like you said, if people stop too soon, things can have gotten worse before they got better and they never got the chance to get better. You know, obviously the caveat is if you're having a rash, you know, if you yeah, can't breathe, yeah. if you're, you know, really sick, your stomach is really upset or you get high blood pressure and high temperatures, things like that, it's really important to go and, and reevaluate the medication. But if you're not having an allergic reaction or kind of a serotonin syndrome type reaction, then persevering for four weeks and that's so hard is so hard because you're physically putting something in your mouth that you feel is making you worse and you're like why would I be doing this and potentially you never really wanted to take it in the first place it's mm -hmm. really hard to do but at the same time my mum used to always say you could do anything for four weeks <laughs> um and I think it's worth giving it that shot because if it's not effective by four weeks and you're having side effects then you need to change okay but it's worth giving it that adequate trial of four to six weeks to see. And just to clarify, so the selective noradrenaline reuptake in... So serotonin and noradrenaline, whereas okay. the other ones are selective serotonin. Okay. So, you know, we have serotonin, we have dopamine, we have oxytocin, there's loads of different um, neuroreceptors and neurochemicals that are working in the brain. And 
adrenaline and noradrenaline are the kind of stress hormone one and serotonin is kind of maybe more considered the mood one but those are really old conceptualizations of it and what we're realizing as kind of science moves on is that they interact a lot and it's not as straightforward as that but okay generally speaking that's the idea that adrenaline stress serotonin mood because you might just read about medication and think oh all that's wrong is that i don't have enough serotonin in my brain and that's not it i know and that's a helpful kind of um analogy yeah. yeah because it's true to a degree that there's something going on there's a lack of the correct regulation but it's probably not just as quite as simple as boosting up serotonin because if that was the case we would expect that the benefit would happen quite quickly actually mm. um so there's more going on than that and they're more effective in different ways and that's where it would come to what i was saying of the the overall benefit of taking a proper treatment so an snri or an ssri for a treatment course so if you've had one what we would call episode of depression or anxiety so that's one time where you know for a period of weeks you were completely changed and different you couldn't function you know things had gotten to the point where you needed treatment if you've had one of those you should definitely take medication for at least a year after you're fully well so for most people that ends up being about 18 months total do you know so they're kind of on it and getting better for maybe four or six months, and then they continue it for a year thereafter. At that time, it's definitely worth thinking about coming off because that's the time when you've had lasting benefit Mm -hmm. and your risk of relapse is much reduced from the fact that you've continued it for a year. About 70% reduction in your risk of relapse if you've continued it like that. Okay, so, I mean, I am 30 now and 31 this year and, you know, starting to think about having babies and stuff maybe in a couple of years and it is kind of hanging over my head that I'm still on this medication is there going to be like I don't want to just randomly come off it and get pregnant and then deal with the complete yo-yo that's going on there but I suppose I've had this fear of coming off it in case I really fall back down the rabbit hole and I just don't know if I could cope with that but I didn't know that it can have therapeutic effects long after yeah. we take it. And I've been on it now for a good few years. Exactly. And the other question to ask, or that I ask people is, you know, did you have previous subclinical episodes? Like, did you have times where you were kind of probably unwell before, but never sought treatment? Because if somebody has a recurrent anxiety disorder, oh, yeah. then the balance shifts. So if they've had episodes more than just that one, then the likelihood of them relapsing off treatment is a lot more. Okay, because like I think I've always had anxiety in my life, and it was definitely very much an issue when I was um, in school. And but it would have always manifested in my stomach, so I mm. wouldn't have necessarily had violent panic attacks. But this was that one main breakdown episode that I feel is where it all got really bad, and that's usually what I focus on. Yeah. Um. So I suppose it would be just one, yeah, one, one like that, one very, very, and then a kind yeah. of what we would call high baseline anxiety yes. or a trait anxiety yes. before that. I mean, you know, pregnancy is its own thing, and it could be a whole podcast in itself, medication mm-hmm. in pregnancy. But a good rule of thumb is, you know, you need to be well to be able to be pregnant yeah. and to be able to parent, and that's the most important thing. Um, the benefit to your baby of having a mother who's well is huge and the risk of having a mother who's unwell is huge for you and for them mm-hmm. but equally you know we never want somebody to be on medication that they 
could potentially be off, especially in the early part of pregnancy. So what can be useful to do sometimes is to trial coming off and see how you are for maybe a period of, you know, a month or two. If that has gone okay, to consider staying off until you've conceived and are out of your first trimester okay. and then going back on medication. Okay. Because being pregnant is a risk for relapse of anxiety, mm-hmm. depression, bipolar, pretty much every mental health problem that we know of probably because of the hormonal and immunological changes that happen in the body that's what i would be afraid of yeah, yeah it's like all of that change and i think you know people a lot of the time they come on to me and they say oh i was doing well i was on medication i felt great so, so i thought i was fine i stopped taking mm. it and then now i feel awful and i'm like did you just drop off a cliff with it like you know and first of all like i always say i can't advise you this is not i'm not qualified but what I think you've done wrong here, maybe you should talk to your doctor, is sort of come off it in stages and, it, you know, be very slow with it. Yeah, and always be be clear that you can go back up to the previous stage if that's what you need. Like, mm-hmm. doing the increments slowly. So maybe kind of four or six weeks so you can actually see what the effect has been. Because the effect in your body, like, you, you won't actually notice the longer term benefits until you've been off it for a period of time and then you'll be able to see. But if you're you know, doing all your other things to keep yourself well and things are slipping and medication is the thing that's changed, like, please go back and go back on it because you're just, you know, it's unnecessary not to be on treatment. You're trying to prove something to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, like, it would be kind of psychosomatic in that, like, if I, like, sometimes if I'm away and I'm like, oh my God, I forgot to take them with me, Mm. I then am like, immediately, like, am I, am I panicked? Am I, so I kind of, it's, it's sort of not real, but it's, I make myself panic. So for me, it would be a, a cognitive behavioral challenge to not panic and expect to be feeling bad and and relax into it as well which would be a challenge in itself just pay attention to your actual experience and not project on what you're expecting yeah I mean that's hard to do for sure I think I wanted to talk just a little bit about side effects because I think it's really important to acknowledge and this is the other thing you know we're not here on behalf of the drug company (laughs) you know I'm not here trying to tell everyone it's delightful and it's not gonna be a pain to have side effects you probably, you know, have heard more of personal experience of people, you know, from what each person experiences can be different. But the general class side effects, say, of an SSRI would be headache, yawning, tiredness, dizziness, stomach pain, nausea, diarrhea, sleep disturbance. Like they can go on. Mm. But really what I tell people is there's the initial side effect part. So there's the adjustment of your body to the medication where you, I think, should be a little bit forgiving. Because there's a good few things going on. Your body's adjusting to something new. Mentally, you're adjusting to the idea that you're on a medication. You're probably paying more attention to your physical symptoms. So there's a lot to explain why you would be experiencing them. So I say give them two or three weeks where you're expecting and accepting things like feeling tired, uh, feeling a bit zapped, your stomach being a bit off, um, those kinds of things. If most people, those settle out between maybe the week, like first or second month of treatment, in which case the longer term side effects might kick in. So those are things like sexual dysfunction. So for Uh some people, their libido or their actual ability to perform sexually can be impacted. Um, And then there can be, I suppose, you know, the rarer type side effects like... um, You know, I was about to say mental clouding, but I actually don't even think that is one of SSRIs. I think that's really you know mainly it's just kind of sexual side effects that I worry about after the first month or so okay so if those happen 
the kind of longer term side effects or if those initial ones don't go away again go back because it's worth trying a different one doctors are often you know reluctant enough to do that because they're not that aware that there is an idiosyncrasy in the side effects so what happens with one medication might not happen with another even if it's the same class okay we don't have a very good explanation of why that is and we don't unfortunately have a good way of picking who's going to get what side effects but it's probably something to do with the way your body processes things so you know changing for example from lexapro to sertraline that can mean that somebody's libido comes back up or okay. there's different yeah um specific side effects so if someone comes into you and you're, you're thinking okay i think um ssris would be good for them in your head are you looking for criteria to say why you pick prozac over lexapro um so what i do first of all is pick criteria to see do i think medication is going to be helpful for them so the biggest flag i guess i look for is a biological bent to their symptoms so that's change in sleep and appetite and energy levels and pain and activation physically those kinds of symptoms also for women a change with their hormonal cycle so a lot of people know really really severe changes around pms time Mm -hmm. things like that that to me indicates that there probably is a component that biologically we can treat with a medication Mm -hmm. so that's where i go with okay we're going to use one if you're okay with it what uh, one to choose is actually guided more by their comorbidities and likely kind of overall side effect profiles so you know, for women, that's why I use sertraline most because they may well end up becoming pregnant and it's nice and secure to think I was on the medication that's probably safe, you know, to use even in the early stages of pregnancy. Um, again, for people who've had heart problems, it's that if there's, you know, side effects that I think are going to be useful, which might sound odd, but like if a person is really, really struggling with sleep and they've lost a lot of weight, sometimes especially in kind of older people, we would use mirtazapine. Again, that's an SNRI and that has effects with sleep and appetite, which can be useful actually if a person hasn't been able to eat and you know has lost a lot of weight. And especially in the elderly, there can be changes in salt levels in the blood with SSRIs that are less likely with mirtazapine. So basically it's a, it's a personal mm-hmm. choice based on any other medical illnesses, any other medication that they're on, any particular side effect profiles that we really want to avoid so i'll give you an example fluoxine that you're on prozac is long acting as in the half-life the time for your body to metabolize it is quite long so that means it's smooth in terms of its effect in the body there's another medication called paroxetine which is siroxat and that has a very short half-life and what that means is if you forget to take it a day you know, Monday and you forget it on Tuesday, you can get actual withdrawal effects, which is really rare for the SSRIs, mm. but can happen in this one because it's completely out of your system by the end of the day. So it's useful in OCD and, in, you know, certain um, anxiety disorders has been sh- shown to be the most effective, but I wouldn't really use it because I wouldn't like to be on it. Mm. I wouldn't like to be taking a medication that's going to potentially, you know, have to be taken at the exact same time every day unless... The other ones have failed. Before we were recording, we were speaking about the whole spectrum of anxiety and people who are fans of the book or the podcast maybe were like me and were, what was that phrase again? <laughs> Baseline high anxiety. So trait anxiety, we call it. So okay. there's trait and state. And then what was the autonomic? Oh, high autonomic hyperarousal. Yeah, absolutely. High, high autonomic hyperarousal. Yes. Like me back then. Yes. 
And I know a lot of people who contact me regularly are in, in that scenario. Yeah. And then there's people who who just, you know, experience anxiety, like they've had a stressful week in work and they notice themselves starting to feel quite overwhelmed and it's not quite at that level, but they want to be aware of it and keep an eye on it. And they do kind of practice things like, you know, the CBT and yeah. maybe they'll do a bit of acupuncture. Maybe they'll realign, look at their diet and stuff. Is medication far away from these people or... You know, this. I'm, I don't know if I'm phrasing this right, but I think I know what you're what you're talking about. I, if I'm right in it, it's basically people who get stressed. Yeah. You know, people who don't have an anxiety disorder. If you want to put a label on it, which I know is a bit problematic, but sometimes it's helpful. You know, people who are sensitive to their own stress. I would say medication is far away for those people because it's not likely to be helpful. Because, for example, it's like getting high blood pressure when you are going to give a speech. Okay. There's no point in going on a blood pressure medication okay. if that's when you get high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, other things are going to be much more helpful. And that's why, you know, managing your cognitions and making sure your sleep and diet and stuff like that are optimal. That's much more useful. You'd be taking a medication that works all the time for only periods of time where you'd be anxious and it won't have a good effect. All you'll get are side effects. Okay. So yeah, it's not useful probably for those people Okay, and I, we could talk about this all day, <laughs> uh, but before I let you go, is there anything that you want people to know about maybe rethinking medication or changing a perspective on it as being, you know, the enemy or something very scary or, you know, the stigma that's there and where should people start? Um, I think the main thing to think about in terms of how it's useful is it's an adjunct to all other things that you're going to do and if you've got biological symptoms why not give yourself the chance of your brain being able to be more regulated so you can do all the other things that help you actually get well and stay well it's not as scary as you think it's not going to change the way you think it's not going to change you as a person it will help you be who you usually are if it has changed you know how you are as a person if you feel not yourself on medication it's not working right for you okay So that's the biggest thing I would say to try and get people a little bit less scared, a little bit more open to the idea of trying it. And then the other thing to say is keeping everything on the table is useful, but sometimes that can become almost an avoidance strategy. So people are like, oh yeah, like I know medication's there and maybe I'll think about it, but I want to get, you know, all these things. I want to try all these things first and I'll keep it on the table then if they don't work. That's what I did. And that's just unfair on yourself. Do you know what I mean? Because it's not a case of severity and it's a last resort. It's a case of usefulness and is it appropriate? So if you can maybe, if people could shift their thinking to that and have a a more kind of, well, try it and see (laughs) approach. If somebody has assessed them and thinks it will be useful, then I think that would be a really helpful result of this podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Rosie Plunkett for joining me on this episode of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. I hope you got as much from that as I did. And coming up next, we will be talking all things diet, nutrition, and mental health, which, funnily enough, people don't tend to link together. So do stay tuned. And as always, thank you so much for subscribing on iTunes and for leaving a kind review. I really appreciate it.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access a full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.